0: for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash pod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them, positions they influence what's roll What up what up meepsters I'm Ryan Rainbow and welcome to a special dish of the Meat Meat podcast I know it might be kind of hard to tell but there actually is an order I attempt to do these in I try and go year by year, starting with '94. In fact, if you look back, I did all the albums in '94, and then all the albums in '95, and then all the albums. Anyway, you get it. But between being excited about anniversaries and opportunities, other episodes pop up, and that's what we have today. In 1987, New York's Toxic put out their debut album on Road, Racer Records. And in 2021, Music on Vinyl has re-released that album on a beautiful Gat Green vinyl you can feel like you're getting slimed on Family Double there with. Also being re-released on Music on Vinyl soon is Buzz Oven's Roadrunner record, Soar. And there's a really great episode on that album in the archives with former bass player Brian Hill. But also, there's an episode where the Coyote Corner, which is a segment I haven't done in a long time, is Tad from Toxic, the drummer, and he's talking about Buzz Oven. So that's called Synergy, all right? And is that a coincidence or divine meep intervention? Who can say? But definitely go pick those up at your local record store who can certainly order it for you. Or if you hate your local record store, I'm sure Amazon has got you covered. So to celebrate this new re-release, we got a top-tier tag team to talk sick about Toxic. (laughs) Get it? No, not that one. Oh my god, I wish, but no, not that one either. Toxic are thrash pioneers despite often being left out of the conversation, so we'll be having two conversations about it. Later on, band mastermind Josh Christian, whose initials are JC but doesn't think the Conjuring is a documentary tells us all about this album and his time on the label he pulls no punches and takes no pauses very cool but first current thrash juggernauts havoc have a lot more in common than similar spelling habits with toxic so i'm joined by the gunslinger himself mr reese scruggs to discuss his first exposure to toxic and why they rock so hard When did you first become aware of Toxic? So somewhere around 2010, when I joined
1: Havoc. A little bit before I joined, there was this buzz around the new wave of American thrash metal, uh, with the you know the resurgence of of thrash. But it was more kind of coin. You know, it was more looked upon uh, in, in the metal circle. Um, as like this pizza thrash, like re-thrash. Everything was complete throwbacks. Everybody was wearing tight jeans again and moon boots, high tops, and flip the bill hats talking about eating pizza and getting drunk and shit like that. And then, you know, something had, I, what, whatever, whatever t-shirt every band had had a shark on it or some shit. <laughs> so, so I was familiar with Havoc before I ever joined the band. I thought it was pretty cool. And then I, became familiar after that you know kind of going down the rabbit hole um, and finding bands like uh, Evile and Warbringer but also finding this band called Toxic Holocaust and so they're really the only thing that I was familiar with at that point in time was Toxic Holocaust so I joined Havoc in September 2010 and upon my arrival in Denver I had spent a lot of time you know, um, w- with the guys in the band, in particular Dave, um, who knew about all the rest of this, you know, thrash metal. I had not been aware of. i had known about, you know, a lot of stuff on my own, but uh, he kind of turned me on to like the the Destructions and the Sodom's and the Creators and uh, some of the other not extremely well known bands like uh, uh, Heathen and um, a band called Toxic. And when he was like, hey, man, have you ever heard of Toxic? I am like, I thought he was just shortening Toxic Holocaust. And so I was like, yeah, I've heard of Toxic Holocaust. And he's like, no, man, I'm talking about Toxic. Uh, and uh, they're a band from upstate New York. Uh, they only have two records, but uh, they're, they're really sick. And so he, um, at the time, you know, everybody's got it walking around with an iPod. He put World Circus and uh, Think This on my iPod. And then we went on our first tour, so... That was pretty much it. I was pretty, pretty into both records, and particularly, in particular, think this. I just thought is was, was so amazing. I loved everything about it, as far as that style of um, metal, uh, that style
0: of thrash metal. And did you feel any sort of connection to Toxic because you're also in a band that spells a word incorrectly with a K? <laughs>
1: yes, yeah, right then and. There, I knew that uh, we were somewhere uh, separated at uh,
0: <laughs> dyslexic or uh, uh, illiterate birth. Pretty fitting. But the K is a, a more <laughs> geometric-looking letter, right? So for logos, you can make those really sharp.
1: It's, yeah, it's the whole reason. It's the whole reason uh, Dave designed the logo to be what it is. He drew it on a notebook in high school and thought it looked cool more than it sounded cool. And uh, I get hit up with the wildest theories all the time as to how the band's name came about. And none of them are as cool as the actual story. Like, my favorite story and something that I would love is if people really thought it was because, like, the band, all the members of the band were super, like, Marvel fans. And we got it from Havoc, Cyclops' brother. But that's not the, the real story. The real story is that they've, put a bunch of stuff on a notebook back in high school and thought Havoc looked cool, and he then drew a logo that looked real sharp, and yeah, like you said, symmetrical and stuff, so he's like, yep, yeah, that's what it is.
0: Now you mentioned that you were kind but of drawn to, to think this more. Is it because it has that kind of more progressive, uh, you know, it's a lot more notey too, right? Like, it's a little bit more complicated in the playing?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and as, as asked backwards as this, this sounds, you know, given that you know, you know me pretty well, and maybe a couple of listeners out there might know me pretty well. <laughs> I like stuff that sounds smart, <laughs> um, but playing-wise, uh, I know that's kind of asked backwards as to like who I am as an individual. If you meet me, you're like, "Wow, that guy's done as shit." But I, I like I like the thinking man's type of metal in small doses. But I really think it goes a whole. I think it, I think it really goes a long way when you put a little bit more thought into the playing. Uh, uh, instrument wise note wise and all this other stuff not to say that you know there's there's definitely stuff out there today and back then that was like had its head up its own ass when it came to that sort of stuff but I think Toxic and Think This in particular really uh, hit the mark for me just because it was for one it's really great songwriting in the context of thrash like technical thrash metal but it didn't it, it, it wasn't just that element like i love the song structure i love the note choices of course i love josh josh Krishna is one of the most underrated players out there i love his tone i love his phrasing he is a thrash metal you know yngwie malmstein on like crack you know just awesome whammy stuff amazing phrase amazing phrases and the way he goes in and out of lines with his lead playing, but his rhythm chops because he's the only guitar player in the band, really, really killer stuff, especially with all those notes. He's able to to get out and make it sound so musical at the same time. But the thing that really put it over the edge for me and why I still love Think This to this day, maybe a little bit more over World Circus, is because I love, their, I love the
0: vocalists
1: on this I think it was a little bit even with that falsetto very I wouldn't call it operatic a lot of people like to use that word but it's not opera but it you know you know what I mean like a falsetto very high range register vocal styling I still thought it sounded very heavy metal I just thought it sounded really badass like a Halford or a Timber or Owens or you know there was there was a lot of balls behind even those high notes and um preferred that vocal, that vocal styling and that voice for 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 uh, for what they were playing as well as of uh, subject matter and the way the whole record um, starts and ends you know a lot of bands throughout the years had used the clip where some you know you have this person who's flipping through the TV they're changing the channels and they don't like what's on TV and it's all this stuff and there's the news and there's a cartoon and, and there's like some porn thing happening and there's an ad for some something you shouldn't be buying because it's going to make you fat or kill you or whatever and a lot of bands have done that throughout uh, the history of metal um, but think this the concept behind the whole record aside from the Zeppelin cover is that every single track has that concept that the whole record is someone flipping through the channels. And then the, the, the thing that come up after the clip of the TV is another
0: toxic song. And I think that's really killer. Yeah, definitely thematically the way the album ties together is really cool. I agree with you on that. And I also definitely agree that I like the vocal, I, I want to say variants on Think This more because he still does those high pitch Vocals, but there's other parts where it's a little bit more varied. Whereas World Circus, he's kind of in that upper register, start to finish, right?
1: Yeah, and
0: I, I just want to, I just
1: want to like that. There's a total difference there. You, there's definitely one style of being able to do it, and and then there's another. And on World Circus, the guy obviously has chops. So I'm not trying to say that uh, the guy is, you know, a shot vocalist or anything. He's incredible, but his tone is a little bit more, I would say, and, and I'm probably way off as far as a vocal sense, like someone who's really well trained and uh, also has a great ear for things and able to point things out like I would be with a guitar. It's got like a nas- nasal type of register. It's got a, I don't know how to really describe it as to where the the, the vocalist don't Think this sounds like he's literally just reaching from his fucking, you know from the depths. Um, It's a different style of of vocals. Uh, One song in particular that I really like, I think it's Spontaneous. And at the end of it, he does a different variation of saying spontaneous. But at the end, at the last one, he says spontaneous. He just goes like a, wow!
2: And it's fucking crazy.
1: (laughs) They only had this guy... On this tour, which is where most of their shit like kind of really started to really started to pop off, they got to tour with King Diamond, and that was like one of the highlights for them. They had done like dynamos and stuff, and festivals in Europe, right around you know kind of the break of when these festivals were like brand new, and uh, you know so those are those were like the big things that they had done and then and then uh think this came out and they went on tour with King Diamond I believe in the states and uh, there's some there's some video footage that's pretty badass but we got to play with them on the boat and they had a full full roster of nothing but absolute rippers on every single instrument plus Josh Christian Christian was playing guitar and better than ever but uh yeah it's it's crazy you know um i i think whenever i listen to think this i'm like wow this this could have at least gotten to um, like maybe on par with like a where violence was or forbidden was, and you know could be could reach where testament was with a couple tweaks or a couple things here or there. If it kind of would have stayed the course, maybe. Uh, you know, I just I speculate, but I thought I thought they were good enough, you know, to get to those ranks, and I just
0: I had really never known what happened. Yeah, I think uh, it's a it's a strength and a disappointment, right? Because they only have the two albums, so they didn't have enough time to make an album that isn't good. Right? <laughs> they just have two that are that are pretty great, and uh, and like you said, I know they've done a yeah. little bit of, I think like EPs and maybe singles and things like that since uh, more recently with uh, with Josh Christian as the only remaining member, but I guess he was kind of the primary songwriter to begin with. I think this is interesting. And the reason why I thought of you, the, the personal politics of it, of the, the uh, havoc kind of shares with just, you know, not being uh, brainwashed by society and, and, you know, kind of thinking for yourself. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it's definitely something that I've kind of
1: put two and two together over the years. And, and you know, it's kind of undeniable. I, I would say something like uh, socially aware and then politically I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say driven, but uh, politically and socially aware, because it, it definitely I think this definitely tackles a few subjects, not just politically, but uh, you know, socially, all this stuff. There stood the a fence talking about communities going away, you know, seemingly overnight, someone growing up in a hometown. It used to be the, it used to be this way, it was great. now it's, there's nothing there.
0: The land is
1: ravaged, the communities. You know, either not here or not doing too well anymore. You know, stuff like that, and and it all registers to this day. As much as all that stuff makes all the sense in the world to me and is something that I can totally get behind, that it was like an icing on the cake. It was almost like an injustice for all for me. Like it's all about the music at the end of the day. It's always all about the music at the end of the day. There's an image tied into everything, and that's something that I was never really aware with toxic because I never had known what any of these guys look like. But of course you knew what Metallica looked like. They all look cool. And then there and then especially around Injustice for All era, Injustice for All comes out. It's my favorite Metallica record. And the icing on the cake is the subject matter. And the way that they the way that like James or Lars would go about what the subject matter and just say, hey, you know, this is just what we wrote about and you know, have a good time. We want you to come out and rage and, you know, listen to Metal and have a good time. The icing on the cake for me with think this was the subject matter and how the layout of think this and world circus also uh tackles uh a lot of the same stuff but there's some songs and subjects in between there that just doesn't you know it's a quintessential metal song or it's about something different which is just fine you know i I don't want to take away from world circus at all either world circus is also great
0: you know definitely
1: deserves its praise uh as well especially technically i mean jesus christ you know fucking you know josh christian i can't say enough about that dude and that's what i was getting ready to say is at the end of the day for me it was all about listening to josh christian just shred being in a thrash metal band wanting to kind of push the envelope with the thing you know my strengths or whatever and be like okay what can i do to kind of you know kind of push the envelope like this guy did on these records because I, you know, th- this to me is like groundbreaking shit. Like, and un- not enough people are talking about this guy. That that was that was what got me to the dance for for Toxic. They've always been like a, uh, they've always been like this. Um, I don't know, like a, a white buffalo, you know, type situation, like a unicorn. And and the thrash metal scene, it's like you only you, you only know so much about the ins and outs and what happened before and then what you know became of them afterwards and all this other stuff. And it's not like it's not like uh, you know, ex members of the band went on to do other things and then that, that's how you know about toxic or anything else. Like I literally heard this second hand from a guy that I had just joined his band. He only had one record and then we found the other, you know, we he only had think this. He never knew about World Circus. We found World Circus together. And then you know everything went from there. And then down the road, we got to play seventy thousand tons of metal with him. And you know he came to our sets, and he said really nice words. And you know we hung out just a tiny bit, you know, during you know different uh, band sets and stuff like that. And he was always super killer. You know, it's always been kind of like a unicorn type situation with Toxic. It's because. Most people who aren't fashion now in the modern days know to- only one Toxic and they have another name attached to them, but a lot of people just call them Toxic now. But when I talk to people and co- talk about Toxic, when I talk about Toxic and liking Toxic, I mean fucking Toxic from upstate New York, not but Nuke the Cross or some shit. Like, I think that's just lame. When I first joined Havoc, I was listening to all kinds of shit, but one thing and i was listening to havoc and i liked havoc i thought there was a lot of potential where havoc could go in a different place but when i joined the band everybody was talking about these re-thrash bands and they sounded like re-thrash bands they sounded like bands who were just working a gimmick and you know i, I was never a really big waste fan and I was, you know I, I just thought it was kind of silly and i thought havoc could go in a, in, a, in a more serious direction and end up doing that but when i heard when i was thinking when i talked about toxic and when i think talk about toxic in hindsight or, or, or with you know with all that period behind me when i talk about toxic i still only talk about one toxic
0: yo thanks to the leader of shred club reese Scrubs from havoc you could check him shredding all kinds of tunes by meeksters far and wide new and old every Friday at 8 p.m. on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Reese underscore Scruggs underscore. So let's keep it going. Let's enter the big top. Let's slide down the midway to the World Circus with none other than the ringmaster of ceremonies, Josh Christian. With Toxic, did you write all of the arrangements and vocals and everything? Or are you just... Yeah, I
2: have always kind of been the the progenitor for Toxic. That's my role. And it starts usually with a music idea. Uh, I do play guitar mostly, so it's usually will start on guitar. Um, I get some sort of idea of what I want to do melodically. And then I'll work out a vocal line. If my singer is somebody who can write lyrics, I'll write with them. If my singer isn't someone at the time who's a a lyric writer, I'll write for them. Um, But it kind of starts with me. I think that most musical partnerships, whether they're one or two guys or one guy in a band, it's always that way. There's one person who kind of has an idea and then everybody else jumps in on it. And that's always been the way Toxic is. Now, new Toxic, I've got Ron in the band. Ron is very creative on his own and is a writer himself. And we're writing the lyrics for the new record together. We work on a lot of things together. I can see Ron asserting himself. We just signed a deal with uh, Massacre. So we've got three years and three albums to sort of prove out what we're doing at this point. So this record is going to be mostly me again because it's my album. But the next record, I have a feeling you're going to see a lot of Ron. And I think by the time we get to the third record, I wouldn't be surprised. If I hit a point like Lee has with Heathen where I let Ron write the record, you know what I mean? Like I can really see the guys, he really has the vision and he's, he's an equal in terms of his ability to compose. So we're writing a lot together.
0: So early on, was that a lot of pressure for you or something that you thrived in and appreciated having to kind of be the sole creator of the songs?
2: Um, I don't know that I did it for any sort of, you know, recognition or anything like that. That wasn't, and I don't think you're asserting that, but that's, it was never about like, hey, I I do this. It was never that, I just do this. It's just something I do. I, I'm, a, you know, I'm pretty high energy. Uh, it's not an act. And I just uh, have always been very productive musically. I create a lot. I, every time I sit down and play my guitar, pretty much I come up with a song And I read an interview one time with Jeff Loomis. Jeff Loomis talked about his practicing and he was saying that, you know, he has to set aside an hour every day just for new ideas because he has so many of them that he has to like have a a, like almost like a rolling kind of session with himself to keep them fresh, to keep them all together. because He's got so many ideas. I'm one of those people as well.
0: That's kind of how I am. Okay, yeah, I didn't necessarily think it was because of ego necessarily, but like for me personally, like I'm kind of a control freak, so it almost would be like I don't think that you can help me fulfill my vision because I already have the whole vision, and your your input is going to taint that. So I didn't know if maybe that was it.
2: It did. Yeah, I'm sure that in the beginning, I especially I probably did feel that way. But also, <clears throat> if you look at the credits on both records, while I did write the the material, the majority of it. Um, I do credit other people in the band when they contributed lyrics, and I will say, especially now, I have no problem saying it at all that a lot of the first two records—more um, "Think This" than "World Circus," for sure—because by "Think This," we really had solidified as a band, and <clears throat> we were writing together. I wrote the songs for sure, but I would bring all of my parts and say, "Brian, bass player, you play this. Tad, drummer, you do this." And then they would work out their parts. And as they would work that out organically, what happens is they they make it their own. And that basically is changing what you've written. So really, their contribution on paper maybe should have been greater. So if that also answers the question. So yeah, and that may actually point to the fact that I had a control, a, more, a less developed sense of control. I was a younger guy, not as mature, not as mindful. And at that point, like, no, I can do this. Don't, don't get in the way. Yes, I can see that probably having
0: played a role. So, World Circus is the first album on Roadrunner, and also the first album, I think, in general. But I've seen things about an album called Wasteland. That seems like it's kind of like an early version of World Circus. Wasteland was the demo
2: for the we got signed off of, and it had um, four four tracks, three of which, and and in like a, a little blurb called Skippy Windshield, which ultimately became the song uh, Social Overload. So it really had four and a half tracks on it. Three and a half made the album. So it was like, you know, we didn't do the song Wasteland. That's the only one that hasn't been uh, revived or redone. And I think it will be. I think, I think there's a pretty good chance that you'll see Wasteland pop up on one of the next couple of records and, and in, a, in a newer form.
0: So you get signed off of the Wasteland demo to Roadrunner, and that's through Holly Lane is who signs you?
2: Yeah, actually, Holly Lane was instrumental in, in getting us signed. Absolutely. yeah, Holly
0: and Monty. Oh, Monty was a part of it as well. Yeah. Man, going all the way back. Monty just always got his hands in everything. 87, Hello. 97. I
2: have a great story about Monty. Mike, the singer from World Circus, who is from a, a little town in New Jersey called Newton or Sussex. He's from Sussex, New Jersey, which is really country. Like within an hour of Manhattan, you've got cow country. Uh, and a lot of people don't know that about the metro area. New Jersey, New York or dairy states. I mean, we have a lot of cows here. <laughs> mike and i mike is in his dad's pickup truck we're kids and we've got monty in the car with us and i think maybe it might have been brian too so now there's four of us in a single cab pickup truck right you know what that is driving through the middle of Times square you know we're on sixth avenue driving through the middle of Times square singing the muppet song the the muppet tune that goes At the top of our lungs, like a bunch of goofy kids. We're just kids with Monty. Sorry, Monty. Got to blow you in on that one, brother.
0: Well, I know a big part of making this album is a lot of the people involved with it. You know, you have uh, Tom Morris producing it, Ed Repka doing the artwork, all these names I'm sure are established in some way at that time, but now are like legendary names and locations to make metal records. But what I really want to know is what is the hilltop pizza order that's going on when you're making... These songs, because that gets a thank you. That's the first thank you in the album is Hilltop Pizza. So what is the pizza? (laughs) (laughs) That's great.
2: Um, Tom Morris and Jim Morris were not legends yet at that point, actually. Uh, And Dan Johnson, who was our contact, who had, I believe, produced Crimson Glory, um, was the guy that brought Crimson Glory to Tom and Jim, if I'm not mistaken. Scott Burns wasn't even a part of the team yet. On World circuits, so or he was just starting to come around we picked Morris sound um because of the sound quality that we heard coming out of there also Steve Morris who has no relation to Tom Morris Steve Morris from the Dixie Drakes had done a solo record there and I was very guitar oriented at that point even then and I love Steve Morris so that was a big plus for me and they were working with Nasty Savage Nasty Savage was local at that time and they were working with them and I really liked Nasty Savage too at that time Nasty Savage was very progressive they were early progressive thrash. They don't get credit for it, but they were one of the originals. They're, they were grandfathers of the tech thrash movement. So that was why Sound. So Hilltop Pizza. Hilltop Pizza was our local pizzeria. It was owned by an Italian-American who was literally off the boat, Tony. Shocker. Great guy. Awesome. Made amazing pizza. We were pizza junkies. I mean, you grow up in New York. Pizza's a food group anyway. You, know, you eat it for breakfast. You eat it for dinner. You just eat it all the time. And these guys made particularly great pizza where you know again when you're an hour outside of manhattan you might as well be in some in another country from manhattan whereas the city has the absolute best pizza the outskirts it starts to lose its thing nowadays especially with you know convenience store pizza pizza has lost its soul completely except for people who really really love it and then it's become an art form so like everything else it's been taken to another another level but at that point, it was just good pie <clears throat> and we became kind of like regulars there. And he really liked us. Like we we're a little young band where these guys, we get done rehearsing and we're all sweaty and we go to Hilltop and grab our slices after practice. And he'd be like, how was practice tonight, guys? We are like, it was fucking awesome, you know? And it was local. It was like a real local thing. So when Tom Morris came up to do pre-production with us on World Circus, we ordered a Hilltop pizza. Well, Tom wanted a pan pie. He wanted a Sicilian because, you know, that's something they didn't have in Florida in those days. And so we got him a Sicilian and he ordered it with pepper. And they put, you know, those really super hot pepper kernels that they sell like at certain pizzerias, right? It's the clear bottle with the bright red, you know, the peppercorns. Um, They had shaken them all over the pie. Like they were just all over the pie. And Tom had an ulcer. Didn't tell us about it. We didn't know it. So we all just like ate our pizza after the pre-production session. We're having a great time. The next day we get a call. Tom is in the hospital. So we basically killed our producer with a pizza. And and we used our friend from Hilltop to do it. And therefore, it deserved the first slot on the thing.
0: I was going to ask you if if Roadrunner kind of directs you to Morris Sound or if that was something that you wanted. But that was something that you sought out yourself?
2: Roadrunner did road racer at the time did direct us towards more sound. They brought it to our attention. Um, there were a couple of other, we were talking about some other folks, but again, that was, that just seemed like just the right thing. More sound was on its way up. You know, Roadrunner, despite making a lot of mistakes along the way, in my opinion, with certain artists, actually were pretty good at finding resources and paving the way for the industry. You know, Morris Sound owes a lot of their success to Roadrunner indirectly because Roadrunner just kept sending bands. And, you know, Tom is a good, good friend of mine. Um, when you make an album with somebody, you, uh, you're, it's like birthing a child, basically, especially those records. They were really monumental, you know, big moments in your life. Life comes down to moments. Recording your first album is one of them. And sharing that time and that space with Tom Morris Made us very, very close. So on the second record, it had nothing to do with Road Racer. We wanted to go there. In fact, Road Racer tried to turn me personally, had floated the idea of Marty Friedman later on to go into Megadeth and so forth. Um, Marty actually and I had a couple of phone calls about talking uh, about producing Think This. Um, We'd actually spoken to David White as well from Heathen about joining us before Charlie joined us too. Like, there's a lot to, like, the toxic story that's, like, pretty cool from a scene perspective. We were definitely a part of that. We were in the mix, you know? So, you know, Tom has stayed a a, a comrade all these years. I I love him. You know, he's a good good person.
0: And around the time of the Roadrunner deal, you also got offered a deal from Metal Blade?
2: Um, Metal Blade was around. We ended up on Stars on Thrash and their compilation. Roadrunner just had the right combination of things. They were in New York. They had King Diamond. They could put us out with bands that were like us. At the time, they had Realm. I loved Realm. You know, when I first got turned on to Roadrunner, when we first were talking with them, one of our first meetings, we went down there because, again, we're kids, and they gave us a bunch of swag. Like, I went down there, and they were like, God, oh, we had albums all over the place. And, you know, this is down on fucking off of Houston Street. You know, they're down in the West Village. I'm from the West so. You know, we go down to this office, Def Jam is in the same building with them, you know, like it's just this cool spot, you know, and it's at the beginning of Def Jam, of course. And um, they give us a bunch of swag, like they sent us home with like, you know, they want us with that, like they gave me albums, they gave me a carnivore album, and I was like, I'm signing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they gave us Snow oh, White, we're signing.
0: With Ed Repka being the artist and you having the name World Circus, did you guys collaborate with him on like an idea for the album, or you just were like, "Hey, it's called World Circus"? Show us. Um, what
2: I like Ed very much, and I want to put that out right up the bat. I think he's a genius, and I think he basically defined a genre. And I'm more than proud and honored to have some of his early and earliest and best, in my opinion, work on my records. I think think this is a fucking brilliant cover. They're my ideas. They were both my ideas. I'm a conceptual guy. You're talking to me right now. You see how my brain works. I'm totally on the present, and I've been this way my entire life. Um, I had the full context of what World Circus was going to be cover-wise before I ever talked to Ed Epcot. I wanted a politician with a, with a circus tent, with nuclear stacks coming out of the center of it, with Western and, and Asian troops battling one another, Arab troops battling one another behind a fence. The whole fucking thing, man, with his hand on the button, that was all mine, all of it. And if you read the lyrics to World Circus, if you read the lyrics to False Prophets, it's very clear where my head is at politically. Now, no disrespect to Ed Repka, Ed Repka doesn't have a political bone in his body at that point. I don't know where he's at now. I don't follow him. But at that time, he wasn't saying anything political on any of his coverage. He's a he's a gore guy. He's a graphics guy. He is not thinking socially. I'm sorry. And so for him to lay claim to the characters on the covers of my records is actually insulting. But I understand why he would do it, too, because he needs to protect his legal rights. Uh, There's an intellectual property thing there, and he's about making money. I'm not. I'm a poor fucking musician, and I'll probably die a poor musician. But I'm, I'm pure as fuck, dude. And the reality is those were my ideas, and he has laid claim to them publicly and actually ridiculed me for it. Said, wow, man, thanks for sharing my ideas with other people, which is pretty wild. He doesn't need to stand on me. He's already making his thing. Why step on me? What's the point of that? Other than what? Bread? Money? You know, what is it? Money or is it ego or is it a combination? Whatever it is, it's unfortunate because, again, I respect the shit out of the guy, but it's not mutual, apparently. World Circus was my concept, 100%. think this is my concept, 100%. I I wrote the albums and the lyrics long before the covers, and the albums and the lyrics are completely relevant to the covers, and not because... The artist went and listened to my lyrics he never heard any of that he didn't know any of my music so it's not like he can say oh well dude i was listening to, to false prophets on your demo before i did that artwork no you didn't
0: so did you write the song world circus knowing the album was going to be called that like that was you knew that would be the centerpiece of the record
2: yep i wrote that to be the centerpiece of the record
0: and where did the idea come from to put like the carnival you know guitar <laughs> uh for
2: the clown or the or the
0: yeah the the riff
2: Well that 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 wrote itself. As soon as I did it, as soon as I came up with the idea, like I I think that might have been in the basement at you know at rehearsal or in my bedroom and I had some friends with me. And you know, as soon as I did it, everybody's like, Oh dude, that's so good. That's I was like, right, wouldn't that be badass in a song like warp speed with double bass behind it? And they were like, Oh, that would be sick. (laughs) The rest is is as they say, you know.
0: Now, you mentioned to me recently that you had heart attacks and the first song on the album is Heart Attack. I assume that's also kind of a centerpiece of the toxic canon is that song because it's very catchy. It's the first song I ever heard. So is that about a literal heart attack? Now I have new context for the song. Well,
2: no, it wasn't. And it's ironic because if you listen to the song, it goes heart, 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 heart attack. I've had five heart attacks um so it's prophetic
0: more than anything it's a prophecy
2: yeah uh, well apparently self-fulfilling manifest destiny of some sort i'm not sure it was originally um i was working for somebody that i really disliked i worked for this guy in a landscaping company he's just a cock and i i hated his guts and that was i was. i wish he would have a heart attack like i because he was sweating at me one day we were outside it was 100 degrees It's a landscaping business and i'm out there you know it's hundred degrees and we're running out on a baseball field and I'm walking back and forth, back and forth all day long. And I'm like, dude, let's take a break. And he's like, no, we're not leaving until it's done. I think we were there till like eight 30, 9 o'clock at night. No overtime, no nothing. Just totally taking advantage of me because I was a kid and I had to work there, you know? And I got home and my feet were hurt and my hands were hurt. And I was just like, that fucking guy. And I literally wrote that song around my disdain for the, for working for other people. That is when I first developed my core hate around that period for making other selling my time my life to other people for their profit you pay me x for my oh so precious life and time and you make more than me for my time and i do the work and then you're abusive to me on top of that no way that was like the beginnings of my rebellion and and i have never lost that not one iota of it so that heart attack is actually an anti-boss song anti-landlord song if you'd like okay
0: (laughs) Now, Heart Attack and this album come out in 87, which is yeah. the same year that the Heart Foundation, Bret Hart and Jim D'Anvil Neidhart win their first tag team championship with their finishing move, The Heart Attack. So, where was this tie in? It's really true. That's all true. Oh,
2: wow. I had no idea. That's amazing.
0: Well, wow. You, you should have been hitting them up. They should have been coming out to this song. They were in the metal. This is where Roadrunner really drops the ball. People like to say, you know, that they messed up about certain things, but this is really, they should have had somebody in the marketing department contacting the WWF on a regular basis saying, hey, who do you have with the finishing move with any of these song titles?
2: You know, as if I wasn't already dissatisfied with Roadrunner enough. Now I have this to think about. Thank
0: you. The thing about World Circus in general compared to to think this, World Circus is so much more like Pummeling to me. You know, I think this has a lot more progressive riffs and the songs are a little bit more uh, fleshed out, whereas World Circus is more hard hitting. You know, songs like uh Social Overload, you know, have that cool, like kind of breakdowny riff and um even what's uh uh pain and misery starts with that, you know, And this kind of builds off of that.
2: Which later shows up on a Pantera.
0: So between Exhorter and Toxic, Pantera? So do you think that that's a natural development of your skill, or you're telling me that you have these kind of albums kind of conceptualized already, so was that already something you were thinking of? Like, these songs are going to be a little bit more uh, in-your-face and, and hard-hitting, and then on the second record, we're going to kind of flesh it out and really you know, show off uh, these yep. flourishes?
2: World Circus was the first album and had absolutely no intention. It was the actions and this it's the sound of youth. Um, It was the sound of desire, wanting to make it, wanting to break out. Again, I grew up very humbly, very modest beginnings and desired to break out of my situation where I was um, and felt that music would be my ticket to get out. And World Circus is, vibrates, with that passion and intensity. Like there is no direction on World Circus. It's just a fist in your face. I'm literally trying to kick people in the dick. That's it. Um, Think this, I've had a couple of years to think about things. I've gotten a lot better on my guitar as a writer. I've grown um, my social understandings, you know, what what was an inkling and what I kind of knew because remember, again, I grew up in a very politically charged environment in the West Village, born in 65, (laughs) all of the early 70s spent in the company of my mom and dad and their friends who were all really politically radical. All of them, you know, out registering people to vote, going up to Harlem, unifying the, the Spanish gangs with the black gangs and then getting them all to vote. Like my dad was in the middle of that. Me, at seven years old, I'm up there with a red armband on with my dad organizing these people, literally. So this is part of my life growing up, you know? So... World Circus had that kind of like, all of that intensity from my, my political upbringing without any of the understanding, again, directionless. Think this, I'm starting to crystallize. Think this, my thoughts are coming together, musically, philosophically. As a human, I'm developing. I'm two years older. Um, I'm two years wiser. Uh, my label has presented me with business challenges that I wasn't prepared for. We didn't have management. I got toxic signed. We got toxic signed on the merit of our recordings of a, of a song that, that I paid for. I dealt drugs. That's how I paid for our demos. You know what I mean? Like, literally, like, we are really a street band, straight up. So World Circus has all of that. Think This has none of that. And also, Think This then has Charlie in the band, second singer. <sighs> we became commercially viable. Um, in, in, in an interesting play for us, and I've never really had a chance to talk to Monty about this in a real way, but I would love to someday talk about a commonly. I feel like Roadrunner was half pregnant with us. Like They saw the potential for us as a commercial unit at the time because of how the band looked. We had the song, There Stood the Fence. We were able to cross over what Anthrax and uh, Metallica had done, paving the way into a mainstream market, meant that bands that were a little edgier and presented a little bit more challenged musically and brought a little more fiber to the game as opposed to the L.A. pretty music that was all just so packaged, We could kind of come in and be real artists, like a Queensryche, let's say, but bring a a little bit more of a thrash edge to it. And I feel like Roadrunner just, that's how they saw us, but they didn't really know how to push that. They didn't know where to go with that. And also, I feel that the production, and this is not a slag on my brother Tom Morris, who I just got done telling you how much I love him. I feel like the production on Think This Is A Letdown. It is soft. It's very reverby. It's got a big triggered snare. It's like pow, pow, all the time. The reality is, man, songs like Spontaneous and Greed and Think This and Black and White are every bit as heavy and intense as anything on the world circus. In fact, even more so, but production softens it so much that it gets lost. It becomes mushy and a little diffuse, and you just don't have the same kick in the dick that you did with. World Circus. And I think that's the fundamental difference production wise and vibe wise. I grew up as a person. You can hear the growth. It's sophomoric. It's a second album. Um, but also the production was just a little fuzzy and a little too soft for us trying to sell us to a radio audience potentially, which half worked. You know, I want you to know that Cliff Bernstein, who managed Madonna and Def Leppard and Metallica, called me. We had sent them a tape and they called me right after Toxic had disbanded and wanted to know if I had any more there stood the fence up my sleeve because they thought toxic was badass and right for the time, which is big. That's a big nod from a big player for them to call me. That was random. My mom calls me up. She's like, I got a call from a guy named Cliff Bernstein or it was Peter. What Peter Mensch, his partner his, his the guy that worked with him. Peter Mensch got a message here from Peter Mensch Q prime. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, they left their number here for you. My mom. I'm like, Oh my God, mom, that's Metallica's manager. Holy shit. You know? But we were, we were had already broken up. So again, think this and World Circus are very different people, no doubt.
0: World Circus, to you, it sounds like you're saying that Think This is more deliberately a commercial record. Not saying that that's its whole sole purpose, but that it is more that way. It is. Because to me, the vocals for Think This on World Circus would have been the home run because I like the the variation of the vocals on Think This, whereas World Circus has one really cool trick that it does the whole album, whereas Think This, you know, there's kind of a more variety on it. And it has little lower parts, which I think those lower vocals at some point would really made me get a kick in the teeth on some of the songs on World Circus that it kind of maybe deliberately doesn't get because of the dichotomy of the super high pitched vocals and the super heavy guitars
2: um john cyrus at the time was very popular obviously everybody was trying to copy rob halford uh jeff tate it was in vogue at that point to go "Ah!" a lot you know and mike had that on speed dial he the singer from world circus he could he could do that night after night after night after night that really wasn't i i hear what you say trick and i know you don't you didn't mean trick it was a it was a legit skill my dad came down one night we were rehearsing my dad after they had left, the band had left. And my dad said to me, my dad was, you know, an artsy guy. And he was like, you know, Mike's voice is almost like a violin, the way he sings. It's like, it's almost pitched like an instrument. Sometimes I don't even listen to the words. I'm just listening to the way his vocals sort of just weave around. And he really did have an unusual voice. Mike is much more original than Charlie. You know, like when you hear the world circus vocals, he's got an original thing that I don't think anybody else sounds like. I think Mike is truly a singer, um, good, bad, or indifferent. Charlie was more mainstream, um, probably technically a better singer at that point in the game. Um, just more developed, had been studying more, was a little bit more serious about his craft, whereas Mikey was, again, was a partier that could sing. Charlie was like somebody that wanted to me. And there's a difference in that kind of musician, you know, different different players, right? So, um, and I hear what you're saying. I, I could have never gotten Charlie to be on World Circus. Charlie fought me tooth and nail on Think This Charlie fought me tooth and nail on making uh, breaking class. Not bad. Listen, sometimes when somebody fights you and challenges you, it makes you do different things. But I feel that like my the the energy, the the trade off of working with Charlie is that he commercializes my my thing. Like my stuff comes out a certain way. And when Charlie hits it with his stamp, it takes a, a little bit of a center turn that I'm not used to having. I'm used to being a little further left, a little further out. And he just was the very sort of century kind of guy in his taste And you can hear that, that's where a lot of that is Lastly, Charlie's Range Um, If you listen to Songs like In God um, Machine Dream uh, Where he actually does the low And then comes back up to uh, Extreme highs uh, There's notes on that record On Think This that are like Literally alien high (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just like, like i don't even know how he did that and, and he's not a king diamond guy he's not somebody who ever sang with a ee, la, ee, that kind of falsetto charlie's a ah, guy it's like coming from his body so when he gets super super high like that i can only imagine what the muscles in his throat were, were doing like he must have been squeezing the fuck out of his voice box to get those sounds out because they were full diaphragm and that's pretty amazing like from a singer's standpoint technically speaking Charlie's an incredible singer, man. At that point in his career, I was lucky to have the guys that I did. And, and again, I'm lucky to have the guy I have now, Ron, is of equal caliber. I've, had, I've been very lucky with my singers. Singers can suck and kill a band. I've had great singers all along.
0: You know, you mentioned the reverb on I Think That. Have you seen that? Have you received this uh, World Circus uh, re-release yet? Oh, this is the back of it. It mentions the reverb by Tom. It says, Tom, you want more reverb on that? Remember, guys, less is more Morris. And this is on World Circus. So you're saying that even more reverb got added later.
2: So there's, a, there's another funny good toxic story for Tom Morris. Tom Morris had really great control of his left eyebrow. He could give you the highest left eye you ever saw in your life. And he would swing around in his producer chair from behind his monster Trident console, you know, in 1987, right? So he's sitting behind this monster desk, you know, and he would spin around and he'd do this and go, you know, and it, it was the evil left eye. I'd be like, Tom, can we have more of this? Tom, can we have more of that? Swing around and give me the left eye. And it became like the running joke that my nickname should be Josh Moore more Christian. So by the second record, he's thanked me being in on the sessions because i never did not go to a session i was there for every minute that there was recording being done i never missed a minute on either of those records um nor would i now i just have to be there for, for the production of it I, I feel like john houseman in, in lost in uh jurassic park he's like i want to be the first one to touch them you know um that's me i want to be the first one to touch uh so it was a running joke between us i didn't at the time, it was a conscious decision to do the production the way we did on Think This. Again, we were trying to capture mind crime was very popular. There was a, a sound that was of that moment and it dates the record because that's sort of what was happening. Truly, I do not feel that our songwriting and our, and our music actually fit the mold of that production. I think it saps the energy out of our songs. I really feel like Think This, if it had had say, you know, Forbidden's production, from the same era, on it would have been a completely different experience for us. We might have actually been a lot stronger. We may have done a lot better had we had a different, harder production. The soft production only validated the the critiques of us that we weren't really a thrash band that we weren't really heavy, you know, because there was quite a bit of that because of the vocals. We were, you know, nowadays people are much more accepting of different styles and different types of vocals and so forth. Like, but in those days, man, it was pretty strict. Like, if you if you had a high singer. There was a cutoff point. I don't remember where it was, but there were very few people that were getting away with it where it was like, man, you know, everybody hated the Air Raid siren vocals. I hate those vocals. I hate those vocals. I remember hearing that all the time. And I I hated gargling. I hated roll in the beginning. (laughs) I I despised that when it first came out. I was like, it's not even singing. It's like, you know, I'm a musician. Like, that's not music. You know, I have grown much more fond of those types of vocals as, as the years have gone on. I'm not nearly as... Myself, you know, again, I think we've all opened up. I, I think it's stupid to say one's good and the other isn't. It's just dumb. You know, there's a place for both. Opeth really broke that out for me. I think listening to, to them was my breakthrough for that kind of goal.
0: Also a Roadrunner band for many years, Opeth.
2: I imagine that it's much like a guy who ran the perfect touchdown in his senior year in high school going back and watching the video. It's the same thing. You know, it's like I hear it. I see it. And I was like, oh, man, I remember that. You know, I see the photo on the back. That photo on the back of that record is so us in that moment. We're just like, huh? You know, it's almost like the puppy with the head off to the side, like, just super just, we're here, you know? And I love that about that record. There's no contrivance. It's just straight up. You know, I want to say just about Roadrunner. I, I appreciate Roadrunner. I appreciate what they did for us. I know that there's a lot of Roadrunner hate out there, and I've contributed to that at times because I wasn't happy with the way they handled my band. But I feel that Roadrunner, again, I think that they were a pretty strong, independent voice for a long time. And it's like anything in a capitalist system, in, in the capitalist system. You know, you've got to take the bad with the good. They, they they brought a lot of good shit out. You know what I mean? They really did. They also dropped Nickelback on, on the world. And if you want to be a hater, it's very easy to go after them for that. And I really feel that that band, I don't even dislike them. I actually like some of their songs. I was working at the time, I'm driving around, I'm hearing their music, I'm on the way back from a car auction, I just bought five cars, and I'm listening to Nickelback on the radio like everybody else. So it signifies a period of time, just not a very good one. But again, kudos to them for having their, their finger on the pulse and knowing what people were ready for. You know.
0: I think as a guitar player, if you let, which there'd be no reason that you would have up to this point, but if you listen to their albums outside of just the singles, There are riffs on those records, those Nickelback records. They are heavy. They are sick. The the album they have, All the Right Reasons, that came out in 2005 and sold like 90 billion copies or whatever, is incredible. I think it's start to finish. Well, not start to finish. There's one or two songs that I could probably do without. But most of it is, I think.
2: Again, I don't feel like they were the world's worst thing. I just feel like they were of the time where they were. I don't know their music that well. So it would be hard for me to, to really, you know, say, oh, yeah, that record kicks ass. Yeah. I could say that about certain records, like people hate um, Slipknot on a very similar level. I don't know, man. I feel like the first two or three Slipknot records are pretty fucking badass. The first Slipknot album crushes. And then uh, is it Iowa? Iowa sick, man. Like, I like those records. I think those guys were pushing it, you know, the envelope. Again, I, I'm not so I'm not a I'm not a purist. I'm not a, a bigot. I don't put I don't hate on things indiscriminately because it's from a genre that I don't dig. I don't, I don't do any of that shit. I think that's all dumb. I, and you know, probably because I've been a victim of that. I was somebody who kind of like didn't maybe get as much of a chance out there as I would have liked to in part, because we didn't fit a specific mold at a specific time. And uh, so maybe I'm more sensitive to being an outsider that way. But anyway, I always feel like, you know, if it's good, it's good. And I want to give Road Racer credit where credit's due. I feel like they broke a lot of band. I can't hate on Roadrunner. I never would hate on Monty. I would never hate on Holly. You know, there are people in that office that I could say some disparaging things about <laughs> right now, um, but it wouldn't make a difference. It's so many years later that it would just be sour grapes. Doug Keogh, I'm sorry. There are people who who don't deserve to be put down with that label, Monty Connor, Holly Lane, and other people who I feel really deserve it. And then, of course, then there's Case Wessels. But I mean, you know, there's the, the people who were good were really because again, I'm 19 years old. You get me to sign a contract that cross-collateralizes my publishing in perpetuity. In other words, the stupid fucking nickel that the radio would have to pay me doesn't even come to me. You literally skinned me when I was 19. So, you know, it's not that I'm bitter.
0: (laughs) You're just aware of it now?
2: Because I'm really half kidding. But Doug and I actually had words a few years later on. Like, I think I called him in the late 90s. And he ran up and down me because he had lent me money for rent at one point. And I'd forgotten about this. The guy gave me a real rash because he, he flipped me like 200 bucks for my rent when I was a, a roadrunner band. First of all, one of your bands has to call you up and ask you to lend them the rent money. That's a fucking, that's atrocious to begin with. When we got to the marketing of Think This, like midstream through the marketing of Think This, they pulled back and they're like, well, you can have tour support or a video. We were like, no, we really need both because, I mean, we kind of have this presence as a band. And I think a video would be really important. But we've got a, a tour booked with King Diamond. So, of course, we need the tour support as well. Don't make us make a choice between jumping off the World Trade Center or the Empire State Building, please. But they did do that. That's exactly what they needed to do. And if there were many, many such moves. There were many, you know, sometimes businesses have to make decisions based on business. And I understand that as a business person, as a mature adult. But then there are times where businesses make make decisions because it's easier to make a decision because they like something a little bit more because, yeah, you know, Holly really liked these guys and I'm mad at Holly for what? I don't know that that's ever what it was. But you never know what it is that gives you, puts you in a disfavor with someone or something. And I always felt like toxic. I even talked to Monty about this. And Monty said to me, we never connected. That's not true. We did connect. You and I are talking 35 years later about an album I put out 35 years ago. Now, did it connect on the level of Guns N' Roses? No. But if you'd have put the money that Stephen Geffen did into Guns N' Roses, we might have gotten quite a bit further. What do you think? And it is absolutely incumbent upon the label to take a band that they believe in or don't believe in and make or break them. My problem with Roadrunner is simply that instead of like keeping us as a write-off and just dogging us out and then ultimately keeping my music from me forever, which they have, let us go. If we're not fitting the mold, you're not really making any money with us anyway. We're we're just part of a, a, a larger roster that makes you look bigger because now you've got a list of bands that you've put out. But the reality is cut us loose. Let us have our publishing back. Don't grind us out for 30 years. So there's a certain amount of malice that went into the decision-making processes in that company. He's still invested in it. He made a decision in his mind. Cut these guys. Don't cut those guys. I owe them nothing at that point. They made a decision to cut me. I make a decision to talk shit about me. That's it. So it's business as usual. At this point, I have nothing to do with Roadrunner. We are going forward, nobody cares about my little band and nobody cares about Doug Keogh. And in the sands of time, we will both be less than headstone. But I got to talk about it on your show.
0: You cover Kiss on the re-release of this album. So how important was Kiss for you in getting into heavy metal, especially being from New York? I know they're popular worldwide, but.
2: Kiss was, uh, for New Yorker Kiss, was everything because they were a New York fan. And my dad worked at a bar down in Elmsford called Elmsford, the town close to the city, about 20 minutes outside of New York, 30 minutes maybe up, up the sawmill, kind of rummy bar. He's fairly loved to go there. It was like close to his house. He could slip in there. Nobody knew who he was. You know what I mean? There were no other long hairs. And he could just go in there and get shit based and fucking drive his, his Cadillac home and, you know, through the front of his house when he got there. And we all had put, like, my friends and I, we all had posters that had been signed by Ace. And, like, there was, like, the connection to that as well. And Ace was really the guy that, Ace and Gene were the guys that made me want to, I played drums. I played, in fact, when Kiss was popular, when I first found Kiss, I was 10, 1975, alive. So I was 10 years old, and I played drums. So I play, I would sit and play to that album all the time. And, it was my air guitar to, the, to Kiss Alive on my tennis racket that really turned me into a guitar player. Like, I could play guitar because my dad played guitar and showed me how when I was young. And I could play chords and I could strum, like, since I was six years old. But I wasn't too into it. I liked hitting the drums. Playing drums fit me personally much more. But I could never get anybody to play my songs. And I was already at, like, you know, 12 years old, 11, 12 years old, starting to write songs so i couldn't get anybody to take me seriously and i couldn't get anybody to play any kiss everybody hated kiss around me for whatever reason i was like the only kiss band of my friends they all like leonard skinner black sabbath and you know they're all my friends big brothers as soon as i was really playing with and they didn't like kiss kiss was kid music so um and it was kid music i understand now why they didn't like it, but at the time i thought they were dicks but anyway um <laughs> so but KISS was it, man. KISS was like, it was the the galvanizing galvanizing force. For all of us outsiders, for all of us little misfits, KISS really, really pulled it together. Like, we had some place to go. And that was it for me. That was what really made me say, no, that's what I want to do. You know? I would look at, like, Ace Fraley half bent on his one leg with the guitar up. Like, he would do that pose. He did that thing. and Like, his hair would hang off to the side. That was just like the coolest pose. I had that poster in my room and I looked at it a zillion times, and I was like, "I want to do that." You know, Kiss was like the first foray into consumerism, and my parents despised them for it. They hated me getting into it. I could see. I'm looking back. My dad hated Gene Simmons, hated him. I now hate Gene Simmons too. I get it. <laughs>
0: Well, also, a big thing, and this is true, a big thing that drew me into this album is I love everybody with face paint, King Diamond, Insane Clown Posse, Kiss. And what do we got on the cover? We got a clown, so I'm already sold. Whatever they're selling, I'm into, because I already like the Dark Carnival, and now we got the World Circus. So I thought that that was a very... Very full circle when I saw that you guys covered Kiss, and you know, like you said, of course, Kiss is a, a gateway for many musicians, especially of your generation, but of my generation also. Twenty years or so off of Toxic, I would imagine, with you always having a guitar in your hand, something was happening.
2: If you go search my bandcamp, oh my, uh, yeah, my bandcamp page, I've got like ten records on there. I've got ten different. Okay and it's but i actually have a compilation of all my tv and film stuff that i did through the 90s and early 2000s as well there's a kind it's called odds and ends and that's got all my 30 second and 20 second video clips and my industrial stuff as well my work stuff like that i was doing because i had children i had to make a living so i was actually selling music for a good while there as well and there's a bunch of that stuff on too but yeah i never stopped i had a uh A band after Toxic called Autumn, which was about a year and a half. There's some tapes that are around from that. Um, There was some material written that may end up on a Toxic record from that. After that was Brother Nature. Brother Nature was, I was out in California. I came back from Cali. It was the first band I did after that. Very jam band, mid-90s, hippie shit, pretty cool. Um, And then I did a solo industrial record uh, called The Hate, uh, which was you know, it just self-released and produced, but pretty cool. You know, Um, did a demo with Tom Morris, went down to Florida, did a demo with Brother Nature. Uh, and then I produced a Christian album in 2011 for a guy from Church, which was an interesting project. I produced Tad's record, Lucertola. I did his first Lucertola record for him. I filled out all of the other instruments and produced. Um, I've never stopped. I've been super busy the whole time. Man. I never stopped playing. I never stopped Recording yesterday, working, writing with Ron, recording with Shane. It's like been this process, the way we're recording this record, it's just worth talking about. Um, Recording, like everything else, has changed radically thanks to the pandemic. Um, We are, we have a whole different way of doing business now as a band, you know, the way we're recording this record is very unconventional to what we would have done before, but is in fact really kind of eking out the best of us in the process because we get to work on it and then go home and listen to it and then come back and work on it again. Instead of being slammed into it and having to do everything at once, because invariably you'll have things, you'll have moments of peak greatness that were random, but you'll have mistakes that were equally random. This way we get to go home and keep the peak moments of happiness and get rid of the peak, the random bad moments. So it's a very cool way of, of kind of going about creating art. And if you're a sculptor, um, I think it's probably much that way. Whereas typically with a soundologist, somebody whose art is music, You got kind of one pass at it back in the day, even even up until recently. Like if you went into a studio and you're paying 100 bucks an hour for studio time, you better have your shit together when you get in. We've got it to the point where we can play with stuff. You know, we can sit, we can monkey with it. Do you like this? Do you like that? What about this sound? What about that sound? And it's really pretty, pretty cool. I'm actually enjoying the process. I think we're going to have a very good sounding record this time. I think the production value on New Toxic will be very good. Very good. And we're actually talking at this point to machine producing as well. There may be, or engineering I'm ultimately going to produce, but they may engineer. Zeus is talking about doing some engineering maybe as well. I don't know. We're going to have, we're going to end up with a good sound on this record. I'm excited. Be the first time we did this, I've, I always, used, I've worked with Johnny Rod a little bit, who is the guy who does all the vocals for Overkill and does a lot of stuff um, as well. But he, he worked with us on Breaking Class, but this will be the first time where we actually have a real engineer Modern. I've been doing everything since Toxic got back together in 2017, I've, or 2007. I've done all the recordings and everything myself. So, this will be the first time we bring somebody else in. I'm pretty still. It's going to be cool.
0: Zeus would probably make more sense, but I would love to hear Machine produce
2: Toxic. You know, Machine did a, it work um, uh, with, um, oh God, I'm an immediate brain fart, uh, but King Crimson. And when I heard that, that he had mixed the, the live King Crimson record, that gave me, it's sort, sort of like hearing that Morris Sound had done Steve Morris. You know, when I hear that somebody I really like has worked with someone, it always makes me kind of think like, okay, because I, I trust Robert Fripp. Robert Fripp is a, a serious, serious musician. And if he trusted a live performance to be mixed and produced by somebody, that means he's got faith in them. And I uh, that makes me curious about what this guy's, uh, musical aptitude is because a lot of times producers are good in a genre but they're not necessarily musicians I have got to work with another musician so it's a, you know like Zeus is a musician so that's that's why he does what he does um, it's important I don't really get the vibe of working with a producer who's not a musician that's a, that's a Bob Esmond thing we're talking about Kiss right I don't really want to work with somebody who's like well this is what music should be I need to work with somebody that this is what music is
0: A thousand thank yous to Master Shredder Josh Christian for sharing his stories, thoughts, and history. You can now get the World Circus tab book from sublevelrecords.bigcartel.com, and let me tell you, it's refreshing to finally have a book I can read. I'm halfway through the ringouts of the first track! And of course, new Toxic album coming sooner than you think on Massacre Records. Unless you think it's like summer 2021 and then it's not as soon as you think and really maybe that's more of a you problem than a me problem you know but hopefully you have no problems following the show on instagram at Pod, and coming back next week for a new episode where each one could be the last so join me in the suspense who is me i am i ryan rainbow this is Meat meep, meep and yes that's the best that i could come up with bye